words that change everything, don't they? Jesus saves. It's so good to see you today. Thank the Lord for beautiful weather and this great season that we can enjoy together. Uh, it has been a busy and exciting week here of outreach at River City. And uh, for uh, many of you maybe been praying or seeing about the soccer outreach. We were there last night from 4 to 7. And uh, literally there were hundreds of refugee soccer players and uh, the team was able to give out probably four or five hundred uh, gospel tracts, invitations to church, a lot of gospel conversations. And, and uh, I was able to share an actual devotional with, uh, with uh, maybe a group of about 50 of them. It was just a spectacular night. Be praying uh, for many contacts and things that we were able to make last night. Also, we were able to see two uh, middle school kids saved in our high school here that meets at our church this week. And uh, just uh, ministry opportunities all around us, and it's so exciting to see and appreciate your prayers as we continue to do that. Also, coming right up, really, in the next three or four weeks, there's a lot of things happening that you can be involved in. One, of course, is tomorrow night, Trunk or Treat, right here. Uh, there will be hundreds and hundreds of people here, and uh, we're being more strategic with reaching and connecting with people, and so hopefully uh, this year we will be able to really connect and share the gospel with some folks. Everybody that comes will get a gospel track, a gospel invitation. And uh, it's going to be a great time tomorrow night starting at 5 o'clock right over here on the west side. If you have any questions about that, you can see uh, Sarah Hurst if you've not yet signed up or you'd like to be a part of it and you're not yet. And then, of course, we're delivering Thanksgiving baskets. That's on the Sunday before Thanksgiving. And uh, we've almost got all of our spots filled. And I wanted to say this before uh, we get into the message today. You may have somebody that maybe is a neighbor or a relative that... Could really benefit or be blessed from a Thanksgiving basket, which will be an entire Thanksgiving meal delivered to their house the Sunday before Thanksgiving. If you want to submit a name or somebody that you know that we might be able to reach out to, there's a few spots I think that we have left. We've got a good number of people from the soccer ministry. We've got a good enough number of people from the, both the schools that we minister to, and I think we might have just a couple of spots left. So uh, these are just going to be some great days, and these this is a direct ministry that will have direct gospel impact, and I'm excited about that and thankful for all this season brings. All right, let's take our Bibles and go to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24. Man, now this is exciting, okay? We're getting to Matthew 24, Matthew 25. Uh, this is the last sermon that Jesus is going to preach. It's called the Olivet Discourse. It's actually not so much a sermon like you think Sermon on the Mount or the big sermons of the Pharisees in the temple. This is a message specifically to his disciples uh, upon the response to a specific question. Jesus was often answered quest asked questions in his ministry, uh, and this is the longest reply to any question he was ever given. It's recorded uh, in part in Mark, it's recorded in part in Luke, and it's also given in its fullest form in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24 and 25. Before I read the, the main text today, I want to just explain this to you. This is probably one of the most intriguing texts of Scripture in the Bible. Uh, most people view this with great interest, and most people uh, uh, look at it with great confusion. When you read it in its entirety, you'll quickly realize that there is a lot of prophetic material in Matthew 24 and 25. So uh, this is the last real sermon. Jesus will then leave Jerusalem. He will spend the night uh, in Bethany. Uh, one final evening where, he, where, where, the, where the offering of the anointment is poured out upon him by Mary. 
And then, of course, he will turn around uh, the next night and he will come and have the Lord's Supper with his disciples in the upper room. And then, of course, that night he's betrayed and he'll die and then he'll rise again the third day. So that's where we are. Okay, and I think it's a, a pretty amazing, really, to consider that the last sermon that Jesus preached, at least outside of just personal conversation, was it was a heavy sermon on prophecy. Okay, prophecy. Now, let me give you a definition of prophecy before we get going today. And I want to admit to you that there will be a little bit of homework. Uh, that's not the right word. Uh, uh, let's say preliminary work that I'm going to need to do before I even get into this, okay? So let me give you a working definition of prophecy. You ready? It is history written before it happens. Just let that sink in. It's not weird or spooky or crazy. It's true. It's history. It just hasn't happened yet. How many are you glad that yesterday, today, and forever, Jesus Christ knows it all, right? So, history, history written ahead of time. Something that will happen, absolutely going to happen, just like something happened historically, it will happen. It just happens to be written before it happens. That's what prophecy is. I was intrigued this week and reminded of something that some of you Chicago Cubs fans will love. We're not saying we love the Cubs with you, we're saying you will love this. I was 11 years old, I was in elementary school when the second Back to the Future movie was released. How many of you remember Back to the Future? I mean, come on, let's go. All right, some of you young people, I feel sorry for you, okay? You have missed some of the great movies of all time, like Rocky, okay? Come on, people. If you don't like Rocky, please don't tell me, okay? It is just too good but there was back back to the future one back to the future two with old marty mcfly and doc brown and they travel in the future they travel in the past it's just kind of crazy it was it was quite a bit before its time there was the hoverboard that was so uh, wild in imagination back in the 80s but there's one little thing that happened in the second movie in 1989 there was a prediction as a doc and Marty went to the future they saw actually this headline on what I guess would have been something like Sports Center. get this the Cubs sweep the Miami Gators in the World Series in 2015 that's what they said now, now there's two really amazing things about about the prophecy in back to the future number one there was no team called Miami back then, and there is one now. The Miami, they weren't called, they're not called the Gators, they're the Miami Marlins, of course, but, but there was not even a team. There was a team by the time this all happened. The second, of course, and most amazing thing is that the Cubs did actually win the World Series, and not just win the World Series, but they won the World Series after 108 years of not winning a World Series. In fact, I watched some videos this morning about the, the guys that wrote the script of Back to the Future 2, and they said, they said they, the question was asked, well, why did you pick the Cubs, and why did you pick that as a storyline? And this is what they said, Jerry, you'll love this. They said, they said, we tried to pick the most absurd and bizarre thing that could possibly happen, that the Cubs would win the World Series because nobody imagined that that was going to happen. But you know what happened, don't you? Yeah, of course. In 2016, they did win. Now, it was a year off. 
The prophecy in the movie was 2015. Of course, the Royals won that year. Amen. The Royals won that year, but in 2016, the Cubs stole all the Royals players and actually won in 2016. It's amazing how that happened. Now, some would even argue that the prophecy was actually even truer based upon the baseball strike in 1994, I think it was, that there was actually a season skip, but I'm not here to debate the prophecy of Doc Brown or Marty McFly here, okay? But what is interesting is how fascinating Back to the Future 2 began to be again when the World Series was taking place and the Cubs were actually good after 100 years. And it was looking like, could you believe it, a movie as crazy as Back to the Future 2 seemed to be actually predicting the future. Now we know that it was coincidental, obviously. We know that there's nothing mythical or magical about Marty McFly or Doc Brown or specifically the guys that wrote the script because you probably know they're not the ones that made that up. But what we do know is this, we know that people were fascinated, fascinated with the reality that somebody could actually predict something ahead of time. Well, guess what? There is somebody that predicts things ahead of time. And it's not Marty McFly, and it's not Doc Brown, and for that matter, it's not make-believe at all. Jesus Christ knows the future. Jesus Christ knows wrote the future and thankfully Jesus Christ allows us to know the future and there's no fiction here now I'm just going to read for you one verse and then we're going to back up and take a run at this whole thing but look at chapter 24 and verse number 44 it's the only verse we're going to read right now but I want you to see this and then we're going to back up and take a run at this entire text the Bible says therefore you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Amen. And I want to preach to you this morning very simply on this subject. Be ready. Be ready. What is the message of this prophecy to you and me? Be ready. And you and I need to take a very serious look at things that are serious. Oftentimes our lives are filled with frivolities and things that really on the scale of eternity just don't matter. It would do us all well to weigh in and lean in on the gravity of certain things that are very serious. And I will tell you, when you read Matthew chapter 24, you will not think anything frivolous or unimportant is taking place. When you open up Matthew chapter number 24, you're going to read what Jesus gives in response to a question that is asked back in chapter 24, and look, if you will, at verse number 3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, that's where we get the name of the sermon, the Mount of Olives, the disciples came uh, to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And let me stop and, and, and say, what are they talking about? Well, when you back up to verses 1 and 2, Jesus has just uh, said to them that the temple they are looking at is going to be destroyed and reduced to rubble, okay? And that event back actually did take place in A.D. 70 after the, the Jewish revolt against Rome. And of course the emperor of Rome came in and literally wiped out the, the temple and destroyed it. Okay, the, 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 the disciples in verse 1 are fascinated by the temple. In fact, from the, from the Mount of Olives where they were sitting, this would have been one of the most amazing spectacles you could even imagine. I mean, when you think of Jerusalem right now, 
Probably the first thing you think of is a gold dome, right? When you see the city of Jerusalem, you see a picture of it. you got to understand, when this was taking place, that wasn't there. There was no mosque there. There was Herod's second temple there. And that temple was a renovation of uh, Ezra's temple and Zerubbabel's temple back in Ezra's day. And so, so there were, in fact, that city, when we think of Jerusalem and the skyscrapers and all that was built up, uh, none of that would have been there. The temple would have sat on a high pinnacle and would have been the, the most brilliant and obvious thing in view of everybody. And the disciples are setting up on the Mount of Olives. They're looking down over the city of Jerusalem and the most prominent feature is the temple. And they're gawking at it. In fact, uh, look what it says in verse 1. It says, then the, the Jesus went out and, and departed from the temple and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. How interesting is that? Hey, Lord, look at these amazing buildings. Can you imagine how unimpressed Jesus was with those buildings after he's the one that created the entire universe in six literal days? But they were fascinated with this. Okay, they're fascinated. Lord, look at this. And he gives a prophecy that this is going to take place. There will be a destruction of the temple. Now, look again. Tell us when will these things be. And look at this. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, this is super interesting. The disciples are tying these two things together. They believe that when the temple is going to be destroyed, that is going to be the end of all things. And just because the disciples tied those two things together certainly doesn't mean that's the way that they were going to happen together. Lord, when that temple falls down, surely that's going to be the end of all things. So tell us when this is going to happen. It's important for you to make the distinction this morning that the disciples asked that question, but Jesus only really answers the latter half of that question. They say, what's going to happen at the end of the age? Now, as we open up this text, there really are only two ways to interpret the entire text of Matthew chapter 24, okay? One, there's what we would call a preterist view. Now, that's a big word. It simply means this. Somebody who believes in preterism believes that everything that is said in Matthew 24 and the book of Revelation took place in AD 70 and it is now complete. So that's option number one. Option number two is that it is futuristic. It is about the actual end of the age and that AD 70 and the end of the age are two separate events. Now obviously I believe in the latter. I do not believe that this text was fulfilled in math excuse me in 8070 I do not believe the book of revelation has already occurred now let me give you three reasons why I believe that's true number 1 in this text specifically verse number 15 Jesus is drawing on supernatural and special revelation directly from the book of Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 through 27 now, you're going to have to be an interested Bible student to catch on to what I'm saying here, okay? When Jesus mentions the abomination of desolation, okay, in verse number 15, he is a direct reference to Daniel chapter number 9, verse 27. Now, I don't have time to develop it fully today, but let me be clear that the book of Daniel chapter number 9 offers a prophecy of 490 years that is going to string from the ordering of the rebuilding of the temple all the way till Messiah is cut off. And then ultimately there will be a future final seven years that we know as the tribulation period. In the middle of the tribulation period, Daniel said right in the center of it, the Antichrist would, would establish himself in the temple of God and would receive worship as if he was God. And that is the abomination of desolation. So when Jesus is referring back to Daniel number 9, his audience would have all known that he was talking about, listen to this, a very specific uh, 
prophecy that was yet to be fulfilled and would be fulfilled, and watch this very carefully, would be fulfilled on Israel. Okay, that's number one. Number two reason why I believe that this has not been fulfilled yet is this. The book of Revelation, which, which was written roughly at A.D. 90 to 95, was written obviously after A.D. 70, and still records these events as if they are yet to come. So obviously, uh, John would not have said this, these are the things that are yet to come had they already happened. Then number three, the third reason I believe this is a futuristic prophecy is based upon the reality that in verses 29 down through 31, Jesus is going to mention catastrophic and supernatural details which have yet to occur. I mean, for instance, you read verses uh, 4 down through 14, and it sounds like reading the front page of the newspaper. But when you read chapter number 24, verses 29 through 31, that doesn't sound like a newspaper. That sounds like a science fiction film, okay? The bottom line is there are supernatural, catastrophic things that have not yet occurred, have never occurred historically, and will only occur in the latter half of the Great Tribulation, just before Jesus Christ comes again, okay? Now, let me give you three statements that I want to make before we get into the heart of this message, okay? I'm trying to get practical here. It's just taking me a second to ramp up. How do we interpret Matthew chapter 24? Three statements. Number one, you interpret Matthew chapter 24 literally, just like you interpret the rest of the Bible. At church, you got to understand, the Bible was written as literature, and yes, there are apocalyptic things in the Bible for sure. But how are those apocalyptic things to be interpreted? Answer, literally. If it was written as a simile, you interpret it as a simile. If it was, if it was written as an allegory, you interpret it as an allegory. If it was written literally and plainly, you interpret it as such. So we come to the Bible, and we're not trying to interpret this mystically or, or, or in some strange fashion. We are interpreting it like every other portion, literally. Number two, and this is super important. We interpret this passage dispensationally. Now, I'm only going to mention this very quickly. I am not giving you a course on dispensationalism in this hour because that would be way too boring. Okay, but let me give you the basics, okay? Here are the basics. Dispensationalism basically teaches, it's an approach to study the Bible, that there is Israel and there is the church and that there are promises literally made to Israel that are not fulfilled in the church but they are actually fulfilled in Israel. And things that God said to Israel would not be fulfilled in the church, and things that God said to the church, like the rapture, would not be fulfilled in Israel. So what I'm saying to you is this, folks. God is not done with Israel yet. There is a future. There are promises that will be fulfilled on Israel and through Israel. And you see it unfold in the book of Revelation. So if God said something to Israel... God can be counted on, just like when God says something to you, it can be counted on. And so let me make one more comment about this. It is very obvious that Matthew chapter 24 is a sermon preached to Jewish people, just like the entire book of Matthew is. That's why there's such an emphasis on it here. It is to Jewish people in the Jewish city about what will be yet to happen to Jerusalem and to the city of Jerusalem itself. So number one, we interpret this literally. Number two, we interpret this dispensationally. Number three, we interpret this futuristically. 
And I'm going to point this out to you right now. I want to kind of break it down, then we're going to get into the details, okay? What you see in this text is very plain. What is going to happen, watch this, in, in verse 3. I want you to go back to verse 3. They ask the question, when will these things be? Now watch this next part. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Implied in the question is that when Jesus Christ comes again, it will be the end of that age. It will be all over them. Now I think it's also interesting that they ask about a singular sign. They don't say what are the signs of your coming? Did you see that? What is the sign of your coming? And there's an easy singular answer to the singular question. What is the sign of the coming of Jesus Christ? You ready? The tribulation period. The tribulation period, the 70th week of Daniel, recorded in Revelation chapter 6 through 19, is what is described in Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 down through 31. Now, I want you to hear me and listen to me very carefully, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay this foundation, then we're going to get practical, so please don't let me leave you, okay? What Jesus is going to do is he's going to answer their question directly. What's going to be the sign before you come? Answer, tribulation. Now let me tell you what's going to happen in the tribulation. In verses 4 down through 14, you're going to see the first half of the tribulation, which honestly is very bad, but it's also a time of peace. Now folks, when you read this, let's just look at it together. Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. Now of course, that's awful. Uh, Antichrist, people that try to present themselves as Jesus is a terrible thing, but listen very carefully. It's not an exclusive thing. People have been doing this for years. They've been doing it ever since Jesus Christ came, died, and rose again. So that's not really anything new. It's terrible, but it's not new. Look at the next phrase, verse 6. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Well, folks, listen, study history. There's virtually been hardly a series of years in the history of mankind where there haven't been wars. There are wars today. There were wars last decade. There were wars last century. There were wars all throughout the Middle Ages. Folks, listen, wars and rumors of wars are not exclusive to the tribulation, but they will be a part of the tribulation. Go down where he says this. It says in verse 7, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against king kingdom. Now look at this. There will be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in various places. Let me ask you a question. Are there famines in places today? Absolutely. The vast majority of the world lives way below uh, normal human standards of living. People are starving to death all over this world today. Are there earthquakes? Absolutely. Have you ever heard of tsunamis? Have you ever heard of Haiti? Earthquakes are everywhere, folks. And so this happens. And what is, what is God saying here? He's saying this is going to happen. It's going to be a part of the tribulation. But watch this phrase here. At the end of verse number 6, the end is not yet. The end is not yet. It'll be bad. But it's not going to be as dangerous as what you see happen beginning in verse number 15. Now verse 15 is a break. Verse 15 is what you read about in Daniel, again, chapter 9, verse 27, where it says this. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, watch this, spoken by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads this, let him understand, and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and so on. I'll read that in just a minute. So basically, verses 4 through 14 is the first part of the great tribulation. Verse 15 is the middle of the tribulation, when the abomination of desolation occurs. And then verses 16 down through 30, 
One is what we call the great tribulation. That's the end of the tribulation. That's the catastrophic, devastating, wild prophecies of the sun going dark and everything going crazy. And it happens, watch this, just before Jesus Christ comes again. Okay, so what is Matthew chapter 24? What is it? It is a timeline of the tribulation that takes place just before the second coming. Now, one more question before I get into the heart of the message. Are y'all overloaded yet? One more question. Where is the rapture? Where is the rapture? Answer, nowhere in Matthew chapter 24. I remember this years ago. I was sitting in my office at Bible college, and, and, and one of the ghost writers in our ministry that like, like wrote sermons and put together books for different people and staff, she came and she said, hey, hey Brian, can I see you, can I see you today? Uh, set a time, she came over, she sat down, she had her laptop open, she, she sat down, had her laptop open, got her fingers out ready to type, and she said, I got some theological questions for you that Pastor Chappell's wanting to ask, and so, so here's the first one. I said, okay, go ahead, what's the first one? She said, can you give me the top five passages in the Old Testament regarding the rapture of the church? And I said, there aren't any. There aren't any. It's the rapture of the church. Now, the Old Testament plainly talks about the second coming, but it is the New Testament that talks about the mystery of the church and therefore, consequently, the mystery of the rapture. So we're not even talking about the rapture. But here's the amazing thing. When you put this whole thing together, if you believe, like I do, that the rapture will take place prior to the tribulation period, then here's the even more astonishing thing. That everything that is being talked about in this text will happen after the rapture of the church and therefore the rapture of the church is even more imminent than what is being said in chapter 24 and verse 44. Now, with all of that groundwork, let me give you three applications from this text today. You ready? Number one. Number one. Men desire to know the future of all things. I cannot tell you how many of you have expressed your interest in our upcoming series on the book of Revelation that we'll be going through starting in the spring. Even when I said that we were going to study Revelation, the, the almost gasp in the audience was kind, of, uh, was kind of obvious. People want to know. And specifically, these people wanted to know. I mean, go back to chapter 24 and look, please, at verse number 3. The, uh, as he was on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Why are people so interested in Bible prophecy number one because they are under oppression they are under oppression I mean folks when you think about Israel at this time they had been under domination from another nation since 586 BC that is almost 600 years there was a Syrian captivity then there was Persian captivity and then there was Grecian captivity, and now there has been Roman captivity. And it's all talked about in the book of Daniel, chapter 2 and chapter number 7. Can you believe that? 600 years they've had somebody ruling over them. They've had a secular government in authority over them. They have been beat down, pushed down, oppressed. 
and they have not liked one second of it. In fact, according to Daniel, it was a part of God's judgment upon them for their rebellion against God himself. Now folks, for 600 years, these people have lived in oppression. They have lived with people beating them down and treating them poorly. And folks, i got to tell you this, uh, the world that you and I live in is no friend to Christianity and no friend to the gospel. Folks, you got to understand, it's not getting better and better and better about how people feel and how people treat people of faith. There is an inherent oppression that comes with living in this society. Folks, do you not realize today that we live in a dark and even dangerous world? Did you not know that? Do you know that even those of us that have been alive for maybe even a little bit longer than others of us, that was a nice way of saying some of you are old, okay, uh, some of you that are older in the room, you can remember times where it was, it was obviously expected and normal for you to send your kids out in the streets and through the neighborhoods, riding their bikes and, and, uh, and, and really not thinking much about it. I know that's how I grew up. I grew up virtually, I'd leave the house after school and I'd come home around dark time every single day. Nobody ever asked me where I was, nobody asked me what I was doing, and pretty much I had the freedom to run around and do kind of whatever I wanted. I think all of us know that this is probably not the best day to do just exactly that unless you live out on a farm somewhere, okay? It's dangerous. It's dark. It's difficult. It's, there, there's, there's devastation all around us. And I don't know about you folks, but, but, but me as a Christian... And even just as a human, I cry out like John did in Revelation and say, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Do not you feel that? Do not you long for that? Do not you see what sin has done and how sin has destroyed everything? And don't you look forward to it all being over one day? Number two, not only was there an oppression, there was an optimism. There was an optimism. In the midst of the oppression, these people have promises. Promises that Messiah was going to come. Promise that it was all going to be over. A promise that he was going to right every wrong. A promise that one day sin would be no more. A promise that one day he was going to come and make all things new. And guess what? You and I have that promise as well. And what I'm saying to you is we should desire to know the future of all things because we look forward to what it is actually going to be. Isn't that interesting? Here's some good questions for you to consider this morning. What is often on the hearts and minds of people as they consider these things? Well, number one, will God right the wrongs that live before us every single day? Answer, of course he will. Of course he will. You know what's amazing about us and the way we think, the way we look at things? We are looking at things predominantly through the lens of the here and now. But do you realize that God rights all wrongs and takes care of everything ultimately? Ultimately. And when is that ultimately going to happen? When Jesus Christ comes again will God ultimately judge those without Christ there's a question for the future answer absolutely if you are here today and you are outside of Christ you do not have a relationship with Christ you are not certain that you you are born again you do not know Jesus as your personal savior listen there's a lot to be warned about here today will God ultimately judge those without Christ absolutely he will absolutely is there going to be a rapture? Is there going to be an escape from the wrath to come? How about this? Where will I spend eternity? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? Is it all real? Answer, yes. These are questions that people should and could and must ask as they think about the future. So number one, men desire to know the future of all things. Number two, uh, I want you to see this. Christ is the authority of the future of all things. 
Notice what the Bible says here in verses 4 down through 14. There is definitive, detailed, and domination in the words of Christ. And I want you to see this. Look, if you will, at verse number 4. Take heed that no one deceives you for many, look at the next phrase, will come. Does that sound like ambiguity to you? He will come. Look at the next phrase. In my name saying I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of rumors of wars and wars. See then that you are not troubled for all these things, watch this, must come to pass. Verse 7, for nation will rise against nation. There will be famines. Verse 9, they will deliver you. You will be hated. Many will be offended. Many false prophets will rise. I don't know if that means as much to you as it meant to me when I was studying this week, but I tell you what, I could hardly sit in my chair with this thought. I am glad to be following the one who is so clearly certain about all things in the future. This will happen. It is for sure going to take place. And I don't know about you, but I am thankful to be on the side of the person who knows the future, who has designed the future, who has prepared the future, and watch this, will lead us all through and to the future that he has for us. He knows the details of the tribulation, verses 4 through 14. He knows the details of the great tribulation after the abomination of desolation. Look at what he says in verse 16. Then those that are in Jerusalem will flee to the mountains. Let him who is up on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Run. It is going to get chaotic. Verse 19. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Having children will not be a blessing in the great tribulation. It will be devastating. You will be bringing children into the worst time of human history. Verse 21, then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world. Unto this time no, nor ever shall be. What Christ is talking about in the latter half of the tribulation is something this world has never experienced before. And we only get to experience it because he wrote it down for us on the page. There will be false Christ. I want to skip over, if you will, to verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, watch this. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. And the power of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. You see those catastrophic things that are mentioned in verse number 29, things that have not yet happened. Friends, one day when this is all over, God is literally going to release his grip on the world that he has created. I mean, think about Colossians 1. He's the one that created all things. And watch this. By him, all things are held together. Well, guess what? There's going to be a day where he's going to stop holding it all together. And the stars of heaven are going to get slung toward the earth. And he's going to blacken the sun out. And he's going to blacken the moon out. This sounds like complete and absolute horror and devastation. And guess what? You're exactly right. And I'm not just talking about the one who literally wrote it all. I'm talking about the one who's going to execute it all. Folks, are you listening to me today? I'm talking about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who made it all, will release it all. He is in control of it all. He can look at nature and tell it what to do, and nature obeys him. And one day, he's going to destroy that which he created, by the way, including the earth that you and I sit on right here and right now. 
think about some of the efforts in our society to preserve things. We'll save a tree, but we won't save a baby. Maybe there's no more godless thing in the world than that. Save a whale, save a tree, save an ant, kill a baby. Where does that come from? It comes from people who think we've got to preserve this world. I got here to tell you, look, recycle if you want to. Go green if you want to. Eat tree bark if you want to. Do whatever you want to. You will not stop this earth from being devastated. And one day God will wipe it all away after he comes. And he will create a new heaven and a new earth and a completely new paradise for you and I to live forever and forever. But mark it down. There is a tribulation coming and it will be destructive to say the least. And I thank God and so should you that we are on the winning side, on the winning team with the winning captain who saw it all, created it all, wrote it all, and will execute it all. Finally, finally the disciple must prepare himself for the imminent return of Christ. How should we be viewing this? Even though there is a period of tribulation that is described, even though that is true, but still the message of of Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 is you should be prepared for the imminent return of Christ. In other words, you should be living as if it is going to happen tomorrow. Adrian Rogers famously said, you should die, live as, as though Jesus died yesterday, rose this morning, and is coming back tomorrow. There used to be, folks, listen, there used to be in the church and with preachers a little bit more gravity related to eminence and the return of Christ. And I'd like to restore a little bit of that gravity to the church today. We should be living like he's coming. We should be living like it could happen tomorrow, today, this afternoon, this evening. Folks, believe whatever you want to believe about the millennium. Believe whatever you want to believe about the rapture. Believe whatever you want to believe about the second coming of Christ. Let me tell you, it is happening, and you should live like it's happening. And I even believe, even for the church, even all the more for two reasons. I do believe that the rapture will happen prior to the tribulation. I believe that from multiple sources. I'll give you 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17, and chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. I give you the book of Revelation where the prophetic program of God returns back to Israel. The church is raptured out at the end of chapter 3. The Israel becomes the focus. Where are the witnesses from? There. They're from Israel. There will be a great revival and reviving of the Israeli people during that time. Multitudes will be saved. Why? Because God's prophetic program switches again back to Israel. I believe that. I also believe that it's important for us to consider because the Bible is abundantly clear in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that people who had had the opportunity to trust Christ prior to the rapture, who denied Christ, who did not accept him, will seal the certainty of their own damnation when the Antichrist is revealed and puts this deception over the world that is described here in Matthew chapter 24. Bottom line, listen. Don't gamble with your soul. Friend, if you go to this church, I can assure you, you've heard enough gospel here to ensure that if the rapture happens, you wouldn't be saved after it happens. There is a sense of uncertainty that that, that verse 36 promotes, but of the day and the hour, no one knows. 
there's a sense of unpreparedness. I mean, if you look, look, look at how it's described in verse 38. For as in the days of the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. They lived as if it didn't happen, as if it wasn't going to happen. How's it going to be here? It's going to be just like it was in Noah's day. It's going to be just like that. In Noah's day, he was preaching prophecy. Judgment is going to come. He's like a sermon. He's like me today, preaching about prophecy. And there'll be people to say, that's crazy talk. That's not going to happen. And then one day, Noah stepped in the ark. And guess what? It did happen. And there'll be this sense that people won't be ready. Look at how it describes it. Verse 40. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Here we go again. Watch therefore, for you do not know the hour in which your Lord is coming. Friend, I am imploring you to live as if you believe Jesus Christ is coming again. And if you are not a Christian, I am imploring you to be saved today before it is everlastingly too late. I read again this morning of the tragic of the Titanic, which has been well-worn in sermons, so I'm cautious here. But on April the 14th, 1912, of course, you know, the Titanic hit an iceberg and within hours sunk to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean and 1,500 people perished in the waters that night. Two predominant reasons have surfaced in all of the research it's been researched by NASA, National Geographic, many, many, many different people have done very deep dive research into what happened. And the two most prominent things that surface as to why it happened, one, is that the captain of the Titanic was, 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 was steering his ship too fast in the icy waters. Other ships had actually hit icebergs even in recent days but had not experienced the devastation that they experienced because of the high rate of speed which he, with which he was driving. And that's significant. Number two, I mean, you know, you know, obviously it'd be like being in a car crash when you're going 15 miles an hour and being in a car crash when you're going 80 miles an hour. The devastations there. And the second thing, and the one that you're probably most familiar with, is that they ignored, according to NASA data, seven warnings of icebergs. Seven. One of which was given by a nearby boat, some estimate, that was as close as 5 to 10 miles from the Titanic when it sunk, the SS Californian. The last warning recorded was from that boat. And after the last warning issued to the Titanic, listen to this, the SS Californian captain, Captain Stanley Lord, issued that the SS Californian would drop anchor right where they were and not proceed any further. The SS California made its ultimate destination to Boston, and of course, the Titanic did not. Well, folks, I'm here to tell you, there is no question that both ships received enough information and warning to stop in their tracks and not proceed on this trip. Just like today, there's one of two ships in this room. You're either a Titanic or you're a Californian. 
you're either hearing and heeding what God is saying and stopping in your tracks and anchoring yourself up to Jesus so that you are safe in the storm or you are running on fast and furious in your arrogance and in your ignorance, running to an eternity without Jesus Christ. But I think there's even more and sad. Yes, the Californian did that. And yes, it was wise. But did you know historically that the Californian has been, listen to this, forever vilified as the ship that watched the Titanic sink. If you were to look at the front page newspaper the day after the Titanic sunk, you'll see a little side column where it talks about the SS California that ignored the Titanic sinking into the sea, clearly saw the eight white rocket flares that were sent out from the Titanic, a distress call. Captain Lord slept while the Titanic sank. 5.30 the next morning, when they finally got around to it, they pulled their ship around and finally pulled up beside another boat, the Carpathia. And that boat had just loaded up the final survivors from their rafts and took them to shore in safety. The Californians stayed around a little bit longer before we're going to Boston and only found wreckage, no survivors. I'm glad in this analogy that I'm on the Californian. I'm glad I'm not stuck at the bottom of the ocean because I ignored the warning. But let me tell you, there's a danger with being on the Californian too. You forget that there are Titanic sinkings. And you sit around and sleep comfortably while there is a world, the Titanic, sinking and dying and going to hell. And church, I got to tell you, that's where many of us are today. We do not live with gospel urgency. We're urgent about everything else in the world other than the gospel. God, God, God I'm telling you, I, and I, it's been for me, God's been speaking to me, he's been, he's been working in my life showing me individuals and people all around me, places where people need Christ. Guys, if you would have been with us last night, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just trying to set context here. It would have been like going on a world missions trip. Brother Jerry, I'm talking about people from every nation imaginable, every continent imaginable were there. People from Russia, people from Croatia, people from Jamaica. People from Africa, an entire Islamic team was there. And I got to talk to them, give them the gospel, invite them to church, tell them about Jesus. It was insane. And literally, I just I almost reeled back when it was all done after, after having scores and scores of conversations and, and literally seeing our team pass out hundreds of gospel tracts through the night. I thought, good Lord, Lord, help us. Here we are. We don't have to go on a mission trip anymore. The mission fields come to us. And they're everywhere. And Jacksonville, at best, is a post-Christian city. With churches everywhere that are dead, dying, and decaying all around us. Where we meet together as, 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 as Christians, huddling up on Sunday to get our whatever we've come for. And yet, we still live in a society all around us. That for the large majority part is dying and going to hell. And many of us have done little to nothing about it. 
And that's the point. Our application should be, we should be ready, but we should also be urgently desiring that anybody and everybody that we may have a chance to talk to would be able to trust Christ as Savior this morning. Maybe you're here today without Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. This is a serious and sobering text of Scripture with real serious implications for your life, your future, your eternity. Friend, I got to tell you, if you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have never trusted Him, if you have never accepted Him as the only way to heaven, You should open up your heart right now and accept Christ as your Savior. I was thrilled to talk to one of our members in his 50s today. He told me that just a few weeks ago, he personally accepted Christ in his own home. He's getting baptized next Sunday. Friend, I do not believe that just because you're sitting here in this church, that means you're a Christian. Do you know Christ? Are you certain if you died today, you'd be on your way to heaven? Are you absolutely clear that when he comes again, he's coming for you? If not, friend, I would urge you to trust Christ as your Savior right here, right now, today. He says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You can do that here. You can do it now. You can do it in your seat. You can do it in the privacy of your heart between you and God. Would you do it? Would you do it now? Just right now in your seat, believing what the message is, believing that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, believe he's the author and finisher of all things, including your life. Believe and he knows the beginning from the end, that he's orchestrated all, and that he died on the cross, rose again to secure your salvation. You can call out to him right now, Heavenly Father. You can just pray, God, I, I love you, I need you. I realize I cannot get to heaven on my own. believe in Jesus. I believe he died and rose again. Today I accept you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for loving me and help me never to be ashamed of you. That's a prayer. You can pray right here, right now. Maybe you already did. Calling on the name someone here and say, Preacher, I want you to know I prayed that prayer a minute. I'm glad I did. I thank God. I accepted Jesus as my Savior in my heart today. I did that. I prayed that prayer. I accepted Christ. Glad I did. Anybody like that? You say, Preacher, that's me. I did that. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm thankful. Pray for me, Pastor. If that's you, would you just lift your hand up? Say, I prayed that prayer a minute. Glad I did. Who else? Preacher, I prayed that prayer a minute, and I'm so glad that I did. Will you pray for me? Let's all stand if we could, if, please. And I'm going to ask Brian and Julie.